Do grab a seat and grab a Bible, why don't you, and uh, turn to uh, 9.40, Romans uh, chapter 3. And uh, let's pray, shall we, before we have a look at that together. Uh, Father, our prayer this morning in, in coming to this passage is, um, is that we would hear your voice um, as your word is uh, opened. And we pray that what you have done for us in Christ would penetrate our minds and penetrate our hearts and thrill us and captivate us afresh. And we pray it for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I guess uh, all of us have, um, we've received bad news, haven't we, at one time or another? Um, we, I guess, therefore, we all know how horrible it is when you have to receive bad news. Maybe you've had to face the bad news that a, that a loved one has died. Um, maybe it's the news that a relationship, even a marriage, is over. Um, maybe it's a diagnosis that is life-changing or, or life-ending. Uh, maybe it's a business that's facing ruin. Maybe it's a job that's about to, to end. Um, and, and when we receive news like that, it's just, it's just awful, isn't it? And, and the, uh, as, you know, the kind of the weight of it starts to sink in. You, you start to process what you've just been told. And you get, that, you get that kind of knot in your stomach, don't you? That sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's just horrible. If you've, if you've been here over the last few Sundays, you'll, you'll know by now, Paul here, in, in these early chapters of, of Romans, he's been giving us bad news by the bucket load, really, hasn't he? Uh, I, I wonder how forcefully it struck you as he sort of laid out his, his diagnosis of the, of the human race. Um, because, I, I, you know, for me, if it wasn't for the security of being in a, in a personal relationship with the, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, this would just be the worst news you could possibly imagine, wouldn't it? You know, from, from verse 18 of, of chapter 1, sort of onwards, right up to, well, the last verse before the one we read here, verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul's been showing us what humanity is, who humanity is, who, who you and I are. And, and he's saying that, you know, regardless of, of what we might think we're like, God says that, that although we've been made in his image, so, so we're, we're, we're precious to him, God says we stand before him guilty and without hope and with no excuse. We, we've suppressed the truth about him that we see all around us. We've decided not to worship him or, or make him our first priority, um, but actually to worship other things uh, instead of him, sort of, you know, we, m- money or career or, or image or power or, or status or family or false gods, in other words, anything else that we put above him in our affections. And so we have incurred God's righteous Anger and judgment. All humanity stands before him condemned. That's the message of the last half of chapter one, isn't it? And if we're tempted to think that we might be some kind of exception uh, to that, if I'm a sort of a, a moralizer who, who says, oh, no, this, this doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm not like that. Well, the first half of chapter two says, no, you too are like that. You're without excuse because despite your moralizing, you are just as guilty. 
And if I'm tempted to take refuge in religion, you know, if I think that my my baptism will save me or taking communion will save me or reading my Bible will save me or going to church will save me or living a reasonably moral life will save me. Chapter two also says, no, there's no refuge for you in religion. Uh, Because God doesn't look at our religious devotions. He looks at our hearts and our hearts are corrupted and they need to be transformed. And only God's spirit through the gospel can do that. Uh, sure, if you've, if you've had the benefit of a godly upbringing, if you sat under the teaching of the Bible, that's a real advantage to you because chapter 3 reminds us that the scriptures are the very oracles, the words of God. But Paul has also told us in no uncertain terms, we are under sin. We're, we're slaves to sin. And, and it corrupts every area of our being. This is our problem says Paul, and and every justification that we can think of, every excuse that we can bring, it just serves to increase our guilt. We're we're morally ruined. There's, There's something radically wrong with human beings, and no amount of good deeds and no amount of religious practice can cure that problem. And and it leaves us facing God's judgment and we can't fix it. And friends, I don't know about you. But but for me, bad news just doesn't get any worse than that, does it? Not for humanity as a whole, not for you and me as individuals. It's a really bleak diagnosis of our position before God. And I I think Paul sort of lays it out for us in the detail with the force that he does here. So that the full weight of it will sink in until we get that knot in our stomach. As we realize the depth of the problem that we face. And then he utters these two fabulous words that, that turns everything on its head. Two, two words, actually, that Paul often uses uh, uh, in his letters to talk about the, the crucial uh, sort of intervention of God precisely at the moment when all hope seems lost. The, the words are there in verse 21, and they're these, these glorious words, but now... Okay, so uh, some of you might remember a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached the odd sermon in Romans. Um, He he said about these two words, that that having seen ourselves as we are in in, in these first three chapters, can there be two words which are more blessed and wonderful than these two words, but now? And I think think he's right, isn't it? Because these are such a great relief, aren't they? Because after after the realistic but bleak news of the previous chapters, he's saying, but now... There is some good news on the way. But now that there is hope. But now there is a cure for this sin that we are under. Because God has intervened. And so with those two words, Paul is going to take us right now in this passage, right to the heart of the gospel. If you want to understand the essence of the gospel... Paul is going to lay it out for you right now. This this is where he moves from diagnosis to cure as he shows us how to be made right with God. That's what we learn in this passage, how to be made right with God. And can there be anything more important than that? Here's two simple headings for us. How can I be made right with God? Well, firstly, uh, verses 21 to 26, God does it. God does it. Have a look at um, at verse 21. 
but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, now we've seen, haven't we, over the last few weeks um, that, that uh, we can't do anything to be made right with God. God's law is not something we can keep. Um, it's just something that shows up how rotten we are, how incapable we are uh, of keeping it. Uh, and, and actually, we all know this, don't we? You know, um, just just think of think of one or two examples. Um, think about a person that you find it hard to get on with. Um, we were thinking about somebody yesterday that we find it hard to get on, not, not here, but who we find it hard to get on with. Think, think of someone in your life that you find it hard to get on with. Have you ever tried to, to really love them? Have you ever tried to think only good thoughts about them? Or, or to say only good words about them? Or to act only in good ways towards them? Have you ever tried that? Have you ever succeeded? Bet you haven't. Neither have I. Or, or think of some other things. Um, have you ever tried to totally control your temper? Or, or ever tried to completely get rid of your greed? Have you ever tried to be totally unselfish? You know, that means never a selfish thought, never a selfish word. Have you ever tried that? And have you ever kept trying and trying and trying and, until it drove you to despair because you just couldn't do it? You see, that's what God's law does. It drives you to despair. As you try and, and keep it, it drives you to the point of realization that you can't. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. So how am I going to get right with God? How am I possibly going to be good enough? How could I ever stand in front of him with a clear conscience? And Paul's been saying, hasn't he, you can't. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested, and it's apart from the law. That means it's not dependent on you keeping the law. In other words, we can't do anything to be become right with God, but God has already done something. He, he's made his righteousness available to us. You see? That the God that we've ignored, okay, the God that we've kind of pushed away and despised, that God has made his perfect righteousness available to us. This righteousness before God that we need, it doesn't come from us doesn't stem from anything that we've done but it's a righteousness it's a means of being made right with God that originates in God himself it's his righteousness given to us it comes from him to those people who can't keep his law and, and that's all of us and he goes on to say, look, that although this, this righteousness with God is not dependent on us keeping the law, nevertheless, look, end of verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the, the Old Testament scriptures, they, they testify about this righteousness. It's not a secret. You know, we've been told about this good news, this righteousness that, that comes from God. It's what the scriptures are all about. It's the content of God's written word. In other words, he, he wants us to know this, this good news. Friends, isn't that brilliant? I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do, but it's not hopeless. 
because there's a means of getting right with God, a, a righteousness that comes from him and that the scriptures speak about so that I can be made right with God. And so what's the next thing you want to know? The next thing you want to know is, God, would you please tell me how? How can that happen? Have a look at um, have a look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? How can I be made right with God? How do I get this righteousness that comes from God that the scriptures speak about? Well, verse 22, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right. That means uh, through faith in Jesus. That means through trust in him, through dependence upon him. That's how we receive God's righteousness. And it comes, verse 22, to all who believe. Right. So there's no distinction, no distinction between Jew and Gentile, no distinction between any other groups of people, because verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and that's the picture. If you've been here, that's the picture that Paul's been painting right through these chapters, isn't it? The gospel is for everyone because everyone needs it. We're all in the same boat. And God doesn't just offer his righteousness to kind of a privileged few. He offers it to everyone who believes. To, to you and me, as we place our trust in, in the Lord Jesus. And, and as we do that, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. And that, that word justified there, that's kind of a legal language that Paul's using. It's sort of the, the language of the justice system, if you like. So, so imagine yourself up before the judge. The judge is God in, in, a, in a court of law. Uh, where, where uh, your life, imagine your life being paraded in front of you, every wrong thought, every hurtful word, every selfish action, your, your whole rebellious life, nothing hidden, paraded in front of you with, with every scrap of evidence gathered so, so that there's no point trying to, to deny anything. You could not be more guilty. But then... Imagine that instead of receiving the guilty verdict, you know, and, and the punishment to follow, the judge, God in this case, declares you not guilty. He declares you righteous instead of unrighteous. Right. Despite everything you've done, your your legal status in in front of the judge is changed. Because through faith in Christ, you've received his righteousness instead. He has justified you. And how has he done that? First of all, verse 24, he's done it as a gift. As a gift, which means you haven't earned it. Right? None, none of your good deeds, none of your, your religious practices, none of your moral living, none of your Christian upbringing... None of it has made even a tiny contribution to your salvation, to your righteousness. No, this, this new legal status that you have before God, that the judge, is a gift that comes from him 
such that all you have to do is receive it. Right? That's, that's what you do with a gift, isn't it? If I say, um, if I say, look, here's, here's 500 quid. I want you to have it as a, as a gift. I, I realize it's monopoly money. I, I didn't want to cause a stampede or anything in the, in, in the morning service. But, but if I say, here's, here's 500 quid. It's, it's yours as a gift. The, the only thing you have to decide is whether to receive the gift or not, isn't it? In other words, you can't offer to work for it. You, you can't earn it, because if you do, then it ceases to be a gift and it becomes a payment, doesn't it? And Paul says this new legal standing with God, whereby he justifies you and says you're, you're not guilty, that's a gift, do you see? And it's a gift, verse 24 by his grace. And of course the word grace there means an, an undeserved kindness or an undeserved favor. In other words, I, I don't deserve this gift. I'm, I'm guilty as charged. I've got no right to expect that God will do anything for me. But remarkably, wonderfully, he's given me what I don't deserve. It's a gift of his grace. So you've got this word justify that comes from the like, like the world of the justice system, if you like. Uh, but then look, still in, in verse 24, you've got another word here. This, this is a word that sort of comes from the slave market uh, of the first uh, century. So that this word redemption, we're made right with God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And, and in the Old Testament... Um, if people got themselves into debt, um, if, if they were uh, unable to pay it off, kind of the last resort would be that they would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off what they owed. And if this happened to a Jew, then the rest of the family were kind of obliged to, to raise enough money between them to buy back the person, their, their family member, from the slave owner. Um, and, and that procedure of, of sort of buying someone back from slavery was called redemption, that the person had been redeemed. And, and, and Paul's point here is that we, who, who were slaves to sin, who were unable to free ourselves, have been redeemed. We've been bought back by the Lord Jesus. And if you look on to uh, verse 25, you can see that the, the price that he paid in order to buy us back was the price of his own blood, right? His own life. That was given when he died on the cross. So you've got this word justification that kind of comes from the, the, the justice system to say that we're not guilty. Uh, you've got this word redemption, which is kind of a word from the, from the slave market to say that we've been bought back from, from slavery to sin and that Jesus has paid the price. Uh, and then you'll see another uh, big old word in verse 25, which this word comes from the temple, which is this word propitiation. And, um, and that's a word that comes from the, the, the temple practice of sacrificing a lamb. So the idea being that, that God's righteous anger at sin was placed not on the people, but instead was kind of deflected onto the lamb. In, in other words, the, the lamb was the substitute that, that satisfied or propitiated God's righteous anger at sin. It was placed on the lamb instead of uh, on the people. Um, and of course, the, the New Testament tells us that, that these, uh, these animal sacrifices were, were just models 
Uh, of course, they, they were just a, a foreshadowing of, of the real atoning sacrifice, uh, the Lord Jesus, who became the once for all propitiation. The, the one who satisfied for good God's rightful anger at sin and, and wiped it away forever. And friends, what, what a demonstration that is of God's love, isn't it? What a demonstration. But, but if you look at the end of verse 25, it, it's, it doesn't only demonstrate his love, it demonstrates his justice as well. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I don't know if you can see the point there. He's saying that right up until the time that Jesus died, that the sin of humanity had effectively gone unpunished. You know, people could justifiably accuse God of, of failing to punish sin and so failing to be a righteous God or a just God. But when Jesus died on the cross, the penalty for his people's every wrong, every sin was paid for by Jesus. And so justice was done. You see? And so now at the present time, verse 26, it can be clearly demonstrated that God is righteous, that he's just that he doesn't overlook sin, he doesn't forget sin, he doesn't uh, sweep sin under the carpet, but he judges sin. He's just. Do you see, God is seen to be loving and gracious and he's seen to be just and righteous and, and not ignoring sin. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? So how, how can I be made right with God? I can't keep God's law. I'm loaded down with sin. Who is going to pay the price of my sin instead of me? Well, God, in his grace, as an undeserved favor, has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die in my place. To bear the wrath of God upon himself instead of on me to pay the price of my sin with his blood. So that I can have the righteousness of God, God's perfect righteousness, given to me as a gift. So, so that a slave to sin can be brought back, right? So that a guilty man can be declared righteous. Friends, can I say, if that is not the most astonishing thing you have ever heard in your life, bar none, you have not grasped it. If, if you see that explained in the passage and you think, nah, you haven't understood it. On, on the other hand, perhaps it sounds so amazing that you're wondering if that can really be true. And if that can really include you. How can all these, these benefits of the cross really apply to me? How can even my sin? Be pardoned. How can the punishment that I deserve actually be transferred onto Jesus? How does that happen? Well, look, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. Or, or look, in verse 25, through faith in his blood. Or, or look in verse 26, through faith in Jesus, it's just a matter of placing your trust, 
your faith in the fact that the death of Jesus has achieved this for you. And so asking him to forgive you, thanking him for sending Jesus to achieve it for you. Submitting to him, starting to live for him. Friends, this is the this is the heart of the gospel. Don't trust in your own righteousness to save you. Don't try climbing up the religious ladder and try to reach God by your own merits. Because in Jesus, God has come down the ladder to you. Right? He's, he's plucked you out of the hole of your own making. And he's rescued you. So just give up trusting in yourself. Trust in him instead. Do it today. What have you got to lose? And receive from him God's righteousness as a gift. Let's have a, a quick look at uh, verses 27 to, to 31. That's our second heading this morning. How, how can I be made right with God? We've seen that God does it, haven't we? God does it. But actually see in these, in these last few verses that, that actually God does it all. God does it all. Have a look at verse uh, 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Uh, you might remember Paul's been um, accusing uh, the Jews, hasn't he? Back in, in chapter 2, verse 17, uh, verse 23, he's been accusing them of sort of boasting or, or bragging about their relationship with God. That they, were a very, they were very proud of their national identity, weren't they? Their, their sort of uh, personal righteousness, their obedience to the law, which they, they believe gained the merit with, with God. And of course, all of us as well are quite capable of feeling proud in our religious achievements or our moral lifestyles as well, aren't we? And we can easily fall prey to the thinking that God will look kindly on us because of that. You know, even that God maybe owes us at least something as a reward for how we've lived. But Paul here says, no, boasting is is excluded. There's 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 no room for it. You've, you've got nothing to brag about. There's, there's just, you know, no room for self-congratulation. Why? Verse 27. On what principle? What law? Is there no grounds for boasting? Well, Paul says it's not on the principle of obeying the law. It's on the principle of faith. What does he mean by that? Uh, verse 28 uh, tells us, for we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, so this principle of faith that, that a person is, is justified, they're, they're declared right with God by faith and apart from the works of uh, of the law. In, in other words, no, no act of obedience to the law, no, no work that we can do, no deeds that we can accomplish can gain the favor of God and so earn us salvation. No, salvation comes through faith and, and, and through faith alone. We, we don't contribute a single thing to it. And so boasting in ourselves, therefore, is excluded. The only person we can boast in is Jesus Christ because he's done it all. Uh, Paul says something similar in Ephesians 2, uh, doesn't he? Salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. 
And, and friends, as we've worked our way through these early chapters, as we've seen the sinful state of all humanity before a, a holy God, well, we can see, can't we? We've got nothing to boast about. And, and we've seen here uh, that, that we've been given our salvation as a gift. So there's just, there's just no room, is there, for even a hint of pride or, or self-congratulation. It's like Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, isn't it? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or, or in Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's where our boasting belongs, isn't it? God has done it all. So it's not going to lead us to pride. <laughs> it's going to lead us to praise. It's going to lead us to, to lives of worship that make us smaller and him bigger. Worship characterized by a sense of humility, right? By a sense of dependence, but by a sense of overwhelming thankfulness that God has done it all. So salvation comes through faith. And that means there's no room for boasting. It also means, look, verses 29 and 30, there's no room for discrimination. Did you pick that up in, in verse 29? Uh, or is the God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. In other words, who's, who's entitled to, to this, this gift of, faithful, uh, of faith. The, the Jews, of course, they were very conscious, weren't they, of their, their covenant relationship with God, some, something the Gentiles didn't share in, that the Jews had been entrusted with the law, you know, the law of Moses, not the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jews. But this was never intended to exclude the Gentiles, even right back in, in Genesis 12, you know, the giving of the covenant to Abraham. It always looked forward, didn't it, to the inclusion of all the Gentiles. Do you remember uh, God saying to, to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, and Paul's having to confirm here that God is the God of the Gentiles as well. And, and to make the point, he reminds them of what they already believe, verse 30, that there is only one God and that he justifies all people, whether it's the, the circumcised Jew or whether it's the uncircumcised Gentile. He, he, he justifies all people in the same way, which is by faith, faith in Christ. In other words, God has no favorites. Whatever your ethnic background, whatever your social status Whatever your material wealth, whatever your religious upbringing, whatever your gender, all people who will place their faith, their trust, their dependence in Jesus Christ may come and find equal mercy. See, there's no room for discrimination. So God does it all and that means there's no room for boasting there's no room for discrimination and lastly just quickly really uh, verse 31 no room for ignoring the law uh, did you spot that do we then overthrow the law by this faith by no means on the contrary we uphold the law and you can see perhaps where this question is is coming from can't you if nothing we do can save us right if, if our obedience to the law if it counts for nothing if we're justified solely by God's grace through faith in Jesus, well, does that do away with the law? 
Right. Does that make the law of, of no use? Paul says, by no means. Faith doesn't do away with the law, but rather faith upholds the law. You'll notice, actually, he doesn't elaborate on that. He doesn't actually tell us how faith upholds the law, at least not now. He will. If you want to dig into that, he, he, he does that in, ver- in chapter six and seven. But actually, for now, he just wants to assert that it's through faith in Christ alone that we can made, be made right with God. And it's through faith in Christ alone that we are empowered to keep and not do away with the law. So how do do I get right with God? What's the answer to this, this biggest of all questions? Well, friends, the glorious message of these verses and and the message of the whole Bible, the the, the message of the whole Christian faith is that God does it and God does it all. All we have to do is place our trust in his son who has achieved it with his death on the cross. It's it's worth us asking, isn't it? Asking that question of ourselves in in what or in whom does my faith lie? Because people often say, "I, I, I don't have faith, but that isn't true. Everyone has faith because, as we've seen, faith simply means trust. So the question is not, do I have trust? The question is rather, in what or whom am I placing my trust? And friends, the heart of the gospel is that only trust in Jesus Christ is saving, rescuing trust. Because he has done it and he has done it all. So is it him you're trusting? And friends, as Christians this morning as well, doesn't this just thrill our hearts? Let's pray that it would lead us to the the humble worship of our whole selves for our whole lives so that he gets all the glory. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the, um, the glorious message of these verses. Um, please, please would they um, strike our minds and our hearts with a, a, a great freshness this morning. Um, that we may be led to trust you fully if we've not really done so. Um, and that we may be led to the humble, thankful worship of our whole selves in your service. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.